I didn't say it this morning, but it's such a delight for me to be back in this pulpit the last three weeks. You may or may not have noticed that uh, Pastor Dodds, Pastor Anderson, Pastor King, uh, Mr. Rios were preaching. I had the great privilege to be bringing the word in northeastern England and Hartsville, South Carolina at Greenville High, among other places. Um, I'll be telling you on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, giving you a report about how our ministry in northeast England is faring, but it's a delight to be back here. When did Israel get their reputation? You know their reputation, right? All through the scriptures. Faithless, disobedient, and hard-headed. Israel's well-deserved reputation for faithlessness, disobedience, and hard-headedness begins right here. I hope you'll keep your copy of God's Word open to the passage that Pastor Pastor Anderson just read in your hearing. In fact, you really need to to work tonight. You'll need to be ready to look at two texts. And I realize this is going to require some manual dexterity on your part probably, but you'll want to have your copy of God's Word open to Numbers 13 and 14 and Deuteronomy 1 as well. As we prepare to dig deep into this text that will bring us to the Lord's table, let's seek the Lord's help now. Sovereign Lord, you have given this text by divine inspiration, and you have told us that it will be profitable for us for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So take this word now and press it home to our minds and hearts. Deepen our trust in Christ. Strengthen our love to him. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've begun a study of Joshua, a son, a grandson of the tribe of Ephraim, a descendant of leaders in the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua himself was a direct descendant of Joseph. And even though he was born a slave in Egypt, he had leadership flowing through his veins. From the first time we meet him, he's a leader. We first met him in Exodus 17 as the general of Israel's armies in their first battle after escaping Egyptian bondage. That first battle is against a a fierce army, the Amalekites, descendants of Esau, who hated Israel. Joshua has to make hundreds of immediate decisions supplies, weapons, tactics, communications, and more, all with men who have never fought one battle. Joshua, of course, wins a great victory, and Israel erects an altar and records this in a memorial book. He's immediately a star, a hero in Israel. We next find Joshua as the aide to Moses, accompanying him to Mount Sinai, camping halfway up the mountain for six weeks while Moses goes up to the summit and communes with the Lord there. And Joshua demonstrates another characteristic that is necessary for leaders, and that is patience. He waits for Moses by himself to come down for six weeks. Now, in the cluster of events we've been examining, and I hope you're looking at Numbers 13 and 14 as well as Deuteronomy 1, Joshua stands out as as a heroic figure. And it's a history that we are seeking to carefully examine. Let me remind you where we stand in Israel's history when we open up Numbers 13 and 14. Israel has left Egypt by a mighty hand. They've been delivered as Egypt chases them and Egypt drowns in the Red Sea. And they've come to Kadesh Barnea on the southern edge of Canaan. It's time for Israel to claim their promised inheritance, the conquest of Canaan. They stole. Israel demands 
The spies go and check out Canaan first. Moses weakly agrees. And this hesitation on the part of Israel as a nation was deeply rooted in unbelief. Since the Lord had repeatedly promised to them, beginning as early as Genesis 17, that he would give them the land of Canaan and it would be a good land. And so there they are, stalled out at Kadesh Barnea, the 12 tribes demanding that first before we go in, we want to send spies. So each tribe chooses one representative. And of course, you know who would be the chosen rep of the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua is chosen as the spy to come from the tribe of Ephraim. And his friend Caleb is the rep of the tribe of Judah. The spies leave. They disperse through the land of Canaan for 40 days. They're doing reconnaissance in the promised land. We can read their route in Numbers 13. They cover over 500 miles and no trouble befalls them. Shouldn't that convince the nation of Israel that the Lord can protect them? The 12 spies return and report. Look at Numbers 13 at the end of the chapter, beginning in about verse 25. When the spies come back, the first thing they admit is that the land is good and rich. But 10 out of 12 of them counsel unbelief and disobedience. We can't go up. We shouldn't fight. We're unable. And they plead in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33, they plead that the the Canaanite cities are walled and fortified. Now Israel, be reminded, has 600,000 fighting men. That's a huge army. They've won every battle they've been in. They have God's visible presence with them, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They have daily provisions of manna. They've already experienced deliverance from the mightiest army on earth, that of Egypt. And so Joshua and Caleb plead with the nation to believe God's promises, act in faith and obedience, and go up and conquer. But the nation reacts wickedly. Look at Numbers 14, verse 1. The whole nation, a couple of million strong, cry and fuss all night, deeply wallowing in fear and unbelief. They lose sleep and they get ulcers. They fret and they worry. All because... They will not believe God's promise. They will not calm down and walk by faith. And so their unbelief leads them to, according to Numbers 14, verse 1, ungratefully complain against their leaders, rebelliously state in verse 4 of Numbers 14 their desire to choose their own leaders. And unbelief leads them, if you look at verses 2 through 4, to express contradictory desires. Oh, we wish we'd died in Egypt. Yeah, we wish we'd died in the wilderness. Yeah, let's go back to Egypt. Well, which is it? Do you wish you'd died there or in the wilderness, or do you want to go back? You see, unbelief is always irrational. In Numbers 14, verses 3 and 4, their unbelief has reached such a high tide, they make formal congregational plans to apostatize and go back. That's what apostasy is. It's leaving God's people and turning back. And that's what they're doing. They are they're making a covenant of apostasy in verses 3 and 4. They want to go back to pagan Egypt. And so you stop for a second you say, uh, oh yeah, Egypt, that's where you were well fed, right? No. That's where you had special tokens of God's presence, such as the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Well, no. That's where you had such good rulers, right? We had pharaohs who ordered you to make bricks without straw and ordered the slaughter of your children. Let's ask the Israelites a few logical questions. 
Now, one of the premises I want you to grab hold of tonight is unbelief, faithlessness, is always incredibly irrational. So let's ask them, as they are rebelling there at the southern border of Canaan and saying they want to go back to Egypt, let's ask them a few really clarifying, logical questions. How are you going to get back to Egypt? Who will protect you from the wilderness hazards? Where will you obtain provisions? Do you actually think that the God who you are slandering and vilifying will subsidize your rebellion and continue the manna? Do you think the Egyptians will welcome you back since all their firstborn sons died because of you on the night of Passover and all their husbands died because of you drowning in the Red Sea? You think they're going to throw a welcome back party for you? By the way, their goods, jewelry, and livestock were all plundered by you when, that, when you left. And you think they'll roll out the red carpet for you. And so Israel begins to state their complaints, what their issues are with God and his providence. And so what I want you to see is some of their thinking and help you see how unbelief thinks. Look carefully at chapter 14, verse 3. They assert collectively, this is a collective assertion, God is against us. In fact, he hates us. Look at Numbers 14, verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And what they're doing is they're shamelessly assaulting the character and integrity of God. What they're saying is God has deliberately, with sinister calculation, brought us here for one reason, to have us slain by the Canaanites. Now, the later account of this makes even stronger their claim. As I said, keep one finger here and look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I want you to hear the claim. It's breathtaking on their part, the charges that they make against God. Deuteronomy 1 verse 26, Moses says of Israel at that time, Deuteronomy 1 26, Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Do you hear what's being said in all the tents of Israel as you walk through the, each, each tribe's distinct region, whether it's in Judah or Benjamin or Ephraim, tribe after tribe after tribe. Put your ear up to the tent flap and what would you hear? Jehovah hates us. That's why he brought us here. He doesn't love us or care about us. He intends to engage in wholesale genocide with us. Look at those words of Deuteronomy 127. This is an incredible charge. The Lord hates us. They are slandering Jehovah, whose name is safe when God's name can be dragged through the mud so blatantly. And if you read Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy 1 with any knowledge of the ways of God and his merciful dealings with this particular people, we're dumbfounded by their reaction to it. How are they speaking this way against such a gracious God? Where's their reverence, their humility, their holy fear? It takes an incredible amount of brashness to speak this way and utter ingratitude. 
If you parents had your children talk to you this way, after all you'd done for them, you'd be enraged. So the one under attack, Jehovah, has, and let me remind you, he's delivered them from Egyptian slavery. He's crushed their opponents, whether Egyptian armies or Amalekites. He's given them water from a rock. He's fed them daily with manna. He's caused their shoes and clothing to not wear out. He's given guidance and protection in their travels. He's set before them a good land overflowing with milk and honey. He's patiently endured 10 severe provocations. Look back to Numbers 14, and I want you to see how the Lord states it. Because the Lord is stating how much Israel has provoked him. Now remember, I asked the question as we began, where did Israel get their reputation? Right here. Look at Numbers 14, verse 22. The Lord says, All these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. So is the Lord Lord doing all of these acts of kindness because he hates them? Is he showing long-suffering to their provocation because he hates them? Why are they biting the hand that feeds them? Why are they attacking their benefactor, raging against their guardian, impugning his motives, quarreling with his designs on the charge that God doesn't love them? And there are some of you in this room that are grappling with this very issue right now. On the charge that God doesn't love them but hates them, we could say with the slightest bit of logic, well, if that were true, the Lord would have let you die in Egypt. If the Lord truly hated you, he would have allowed Egypt to overtake you and annihilate you at the Red Sea. How many ways can a collective people be wrong about God's character? They think or they assert that God hates them when he has given ample evidence that he clearly and passionately loves them. You remember in Exodus 19, just before the Lord gives, he gives Israel the law, and the Lord, as a statement of his affection for them, gives them the law. Did you hear that? As a statement of his affection for them, gives them the law. And the Lord says to them, just before speaking from atop Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the Lord said, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so you shall be my special treasure above all peoples. Doesn't sound like the words of somebody who hates Israel, but somebody who loves them. God tells Israel of his great love for them before he gives them the law. The law is a demonstration of his love for his people. But it gets worse. Not only do they slanderously charge that God hates them, but they add insult to injury by making a covenantal claim. What's so fascinating in all this, for those of you who struggle with covenant theology, even when Israel is slandering God, they do so thinking in terms of families. They don't think individualistically. Even in their disobedience, they think generationally. They claim not only does God hate us, He hates our wives and our children. What are they doing? They're thinking by households. Look at Numbers 14, verse 3. One of the texts I told you that we should have marked. Listen to how they state it. They're making a charge against God of his hatred, but it's a covenantal charge. He hates us by households. In Numbers 14, 3, 
Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? So do you hear it now? Not only are they saying God hates them, but he, but he hates us by our covenantal groupings. Even in their slander, they think covenantally. Now they're disbelieving God's covenant promises to bless them and their seed. Think of all the times God has promised, not that he hates them, but that he loves them and will bless their seeds. This is the same God who will say in Deuteronomy 7, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. They say, nope, not true. He hates us. He hates our children. This tendency, and I want to speak to this pastorally, this tendency to think we are unloved exists in every age. Now, perhaps before the cross, you could have thought, it would have been a stretch, but you could have thought, God doesn't love me. But after the cross, no way. This is why Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 3, and he says, Here's my prayer that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. What Paul says is, my friend, God's love for you is so strong and deep that it's incomprehensible. You can write all the love songs you want. You can't scratch the surface. His love for you is so great. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, and by the way, nothing can separate you from the love of God or make him stop loving you. That's why Paul can write these words, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers nor things present or things to come nor height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. My friend, Romans 5.8 says, God loved you when you were an enemy. He doesn't just love you when he's hanging on the cross in the person of the Son. He loves you now. He even loves you so much he acts like your servant. He goes to make a place ready for you, according to John 14. He sent his spirit to comfort you in the interim separation so that you'll not feel you've been left destitute. Hebrews 4 says he's touched, moved even to the point of sympathizing with you. This is Satan's strategy. To cause you to doubt and question God's love for you. He wants you to think that God is stingy with his affection. Don't fall into this slanderous error of the Israelites. Your father loves you. But then notice another one of Israel's charges. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28. Where the people are, are, are trying to give an explanation for their response, their faithless response of not wanting to go up to Canaan and take it. Now you'll notice they are grasping at any straw they can to do one thing, to obey God's command, to believe God's promise. And so they are, they are saying and doing anything. It's like trying to reason with a tired two-year-old when it's an hour past their bedtime. And look at what their, their claim is now. Look at Deuteronomy one twenty eight. They blame the ten spies for their unbelief. They say in Deuteronomy one twenty eight, Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. 
saying the people are greater and taller than we, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Do you notice what they do now? Instead of claiming, well, we don't want to go up because God hates us. Now they're saying, we don't want to go up because our brethren, the best man from each tribe, has discouraged us. Then, by the way, why didn't the same report discourage Moses or Aaron or Joshua or Caleb? Can others really make you unbelieving? When you stand before God the judge on the last day, he'll not hear it when you say, I was surrounded by unbelieving melancholy types, and that's why I didn't believe the gospel. But you see, the Israelites, and this is where it really begins for them nationally, were masters at blame shifting. Where did they come by that? Well, they learned it naturally, the same place you and I did. They learned it from our father, Adam. You remember Adam, and when he was confronted after his sin, he was the first blame shifter ever, and he was a two-fisted blame shifter. Adam, in Genesis 3:12, when he answers God, he says, The woman whom you gave me. He's saying, look anywhere but me. I'm not responsible for my actions. I, uh, whatever, whoever is responsible, it's not me. The woman whom you gave me, Lord. She gave me the tree and I ate. A double blame shift. And then Eve turns around. She's not quite as adept as Adam. She can only manage the single blame shift. And so she says in Genesis 3.13, Well, the serpent, deceived, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Israel's lack of responsibility. And wanting to offload the blame on someone else is not a new thing. It's as old as the human race. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this sort of thing in counseling. I, Carl, I could be strong if it weren't for my wife. She drags me down. If it weren't for her, Carl, I'd be a marathoner in the Christian life. Or when I was doing student ministry, people would say, students would say, well, Carl, if I weren't surrounded by all these non-Christian worldly kids at school, it's their fault that I fall into sin. My friend, let me just state it clearly. The reason why you're having titanic battles with unbelief is not because of others, but your own untrusting, faltering heart. Stop blaming others and cry out to God, Lord, it's not anyone else, it's me. Give me more faith. Enable me to trust in your word and promises no matter what my circumstances are. But there also, we're watching apostasy in action. If you want to know what apostasy looks like, on the grand scale, this is national apostasy in slow motion. We usually don't see it this formally. Where, where people get together and hold meetings like they did. They get the whole nation. They elect new leaders. They want to return to the world. But it's a reality. Usually it happens on a trickle. You remember the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 where you have stated for us a specific type of apostate, the stony ground here who, who endures only for a while and then he disappears. Or those people in John 6 who were told were Christ's disciples, but then they went back. And walked with him no more. These are the people who Paul writes up to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Who he says, some have already turned back to follow Satan. And so what I want to urge you. The lesson for you to learn. One of the lessons is, even if, you, even if others fall away and turn back, cling to Christ. Even if you're fearful, abide in Christ. Trust in him. Now what I really want us to see in all of this is a buildup. For godly leaders. 
Because there's an antithesis being shown to us. Wicked nation, what do godly leaders do when God gives them a wicked group to lead? Look at Numbers 14, and I want you to see Moses and Aaron, and then Joshua and Caleb. Numbers 14, verse 5, we read, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who'd spied out the land, tore their clothes. Notice what these godly leaders do. They prostrate themselves before the nation, the nation that's about to appoint a new leader to take them to go back to Egypt. This action of falling on their faces, tearing their garments, indicates their humble prayers, their agitation of heart, of heart at seeing God's people throw away their mercies, their great earnestness at entreating the people to cease from their murmurings and rebellion. And Moses and Aaron, despite their high position, they beg the people to not ruin themselves. They know what's at stake, Moses and Aaron do, and they know the consequences of such wicked, unbelieving behavior. Look at what they actually said. Look at Deuteronomy 1, again, asking you to go back and forth between these two texts. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 29 and following, Moses confronts the nation with a simple exhortation, and he supports the plea with two basic arguments. The exhortation is this. Look at verse 29. Do not be terrified or afraid of them. Moses, why should we not be terrified or not fear the Canaanites who are giants and we're like grasshoppers to them? And what Moses argues, and this is spiritual leadership thinking and talking here. Look at how Moses argues with them. He argues from the character of God and their own experience. First of all, he appeals to the character of God. Look at verse 30. God is for you and will bring all that he has said and is to bear against your enemies. In verse 30 as well, he refers to God's might and power according to all he did for you in Egypt. Speaking of the plagues, which were the weapons of God, which he used to crush the powerful nation of Egypt. God's faithfulness is also in view in verse 30 when he says, The Lord your God who goes before you. This is the God who makes your crooked places straight, always leads you into a good place and never off a cliff. And then in verse 31, this is still Moses arguing with them about the character of God. His tender mercies, God's tender mercies are in view in verse 31. God carried you as a man carries his son. Moses is saying, when you were weak, didn't have God have compassion? Hasn't he shown mercy every time you cried out to him for deliverance from bondage, for food, for water, for military aid? And so Moses' initial argument is this. This gracious God has shown nothing but kindness to you. Therefore, repent of slandering him. Don't turn your back on him. He's good and patient and merciful. And then he appeals to their own experience. Look at Deuteronomy 1 again, verse 30 and 31. He says, all he did before you, look carefully at these words in verse 30. All he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in verse 31, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. In other words, look at verse 30 and 31. Moses is reminding them, guys, you have been eyewitnesses. 
You've seen Jehovah's mighty wonders. You've heard the cries of the Egyptians as they drowned under his wrath. You've tasted from the water and the, the water from the rock and the manna. Moses is saying, to turn away from God today, you must deny your own senses. You have to argue with your ears and your eyes. And Moses is saying, don't walk by faith. Walk by sight. And here's what it will get you. Trusting in God. Then the other leaders respond, Caleb and Joshua. Look back at Numbers 13 and notice what they say. <clears throat> Numbers 13, verse 30. Caleb says, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. His boldness and faith are 180 degrees from the 10 spies. It's right to do, we'll triumph. No cynicism, no pessimism. He's all gas, no brakes. Only an unshakable faith in God's promise and God's power. Well, then look at Caleb and Joshua's exhortation. Look carefully at Numbers 14, verses 6 through 9. We read them, we're told in verse 7, they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, and then they appeal to the goodness of God's gift. Look at verse 7. They say, we spied it out. Look, here's the produce. Remember, they brought back produce from the land of Canaan. Here's the produce of the land right before your eyes. Brothers and sisters, let us reason with you this way. This is God's good gift. And then they appeal to God's presence in verse 8, where they say, he will bring us into the land. Verse 9, the Lord is with us. And so what Joshua and Caleb are saying now is they've taken the stage. Is God enough for you people? He's with us. Do you trust his protection or not? Are you confident of his power or not? Joshua, Joshua and Caleb are saying, this is the best argument we've got. God is with us. Will you go with God or go back to Egypt by yourself? And they appeal then, look at verse 9. They appeal to the... the vulnerability of the Canaanites. They say, the Canaanites, they shall be our bread. In other words, they shall be like food for our eating. We'll chew them up. We'll pounce on them like a lion does a rabbit and tear them to bits. And they say this as well in verse 9 about the Canaanites. Their protection has departed from, from them. This is profound. Joshua and Caleb are saying, no people can be safe. I don't care if they're giants. I don't care if they have walled cities. No people can be safe when their sin is full and they provoke the righteous God. And Canaanites are vulnerable. God's not going to protect them. What does it matter if they live in walled cities if God has committed them to, de to destruction? God will be our fortress in our walled cities. Their walls will come tumbling down. We'll see that soon in Joshua 6 at Jericho. Their walls will protect no one that God has deserted. Then they make the crux of the matter clear. Look at verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord. What you need to see is this is where Israel's reputation for rebellion begins. You can track it all the way through here. The days of the judges, the days of the monarchy, the days of the exile, the days of the return from the exile, the days of the incarnation, when Israel now has God the Son walking in their midst and they kill him. 
the book of Acts where they continue to persecute the church. But it all begins here. And listen to what the legal definition of what they're doing is. Joshua and Caleb say, you're rebellion. You're in full-blown rebellion against the Lord. Joshua and Caleb are saying, you will succeed against all these people if you don't make God your enemy, as the Canaanites have done. You see, the real danger in this chapter is not the enemies in Canaan or the giants or the walled cities or the army. The real enemy is in the hearts of the Israelites. Sound familiar? When you think of our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, our tendency is to want to to think about external enemies, the world and the devil. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, if there weren't a world or a devil, I would still have to fight full time with my own fleshly heart. That's your greatest enemy, is resident unbelief. The biggest problem Israel has is a wicked, rebellious heart, seducing them to turn away from the living God. What a sad place this brings us to. Despite all the pleadings and logical arguments of Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, despite all the true theology, this brings us to the rebellion of the people. Look at verse 10. The congregation said to stone them with stones. The glory of Israel appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. All this fussing and weeping and irrational fear has culminated in high-handed mutiny and open rebellion against God. And I want you to look at the numerical statement in verse 10. Look carefully at Numbers 14. Who did this? Is this 20, 30, 50 people? All the congregation. I've thought an awful lot about who's included in that. These are the same people who sang the song of Moses after Egypt's defeat in Exodus 15. These are the people in Exodus 35 who so willingly gave of their goods to see the tabernacle built. These are the people who said at Sinai in Exodus 24-7, all that the Lord has said we will do. Look what they're saying now. Look carefully at verse 10. We need to silence Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. Get the biggest rocks you can find bash their heads in, we don't want to hear any more truth and theology. There was not one reasonable person in the bunch. They were determined to rebel. Here are spiritual giants, Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, pleading with them, even interceding for them. But unbelief is filled with hatred for the truth. We see this repeatedly in the scriptures from Cain slaying Abel to the Pharisees' hatred of Christ. So let me make a couple of applications to leaders and prospective leaders. Right now we're doing an awful lot of talking about leaders and praying that God will raise up the next generation of men to serve as elders and deacons in this congregation. To men who are leaders and prospective leaders, what makes for a bold, courageous spiritual leader you have aspirations to leadership or you want your son to grow up to be a Moses or a Joshua right what makes a man like that first of all strong confidence in the promises of God listen to Caleb in Numbers 13 30 after hearing all the arguments of Israel he simply says 
Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He believed God's promise. He knew God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then renewed that promise to Moses and the people, saying, I'm going to give you the land. His attitude was, along with Moses and Aaron and Joshua, was, God has said it. It has to be true, no matter what the opposition is. My friend who's thinking about leadership, is that you? Do you have strong confidence in the promises of God? For example, do you believe that Jesus is going to build his church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Another factor that makes for a good leader is strong convictions about the future realities of the promise of God. In Numbers 14, 7, they say the land is an exceedingly good land. I mean, if you're to lead in Christ's church, you must have a bedrock conviction about the promises of eternal life in heaven, of which Canaan is a type for all who trust in Christ alone. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 who tells the church, we have a glorious inheritance awaiting us. Press on. It's a good land. It's a land beyond sin, Satan, and sadness. Press on towards that land. My friend, if you are convinced of these future realities, it will have a profound influence on how you live you'll raise your children differently and you'll invest your funds in the kingdom of heaven and then let me make an application to followers the lord has called most of us not to be leaders but to be followers listen to the joshua's and caleb's listen to those who tell you to trust god and believe his promises don't give a minute to the unbelieving cynics and scoffers, the critics and the naysayers. What we find out is later on, all of them die in the wilderness. And so what you're being shown here is an antithesis between a handful of men and their households and millions of others, unbelievers. God is showing these shining lights as men who believe the promises of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanksgiving tonight for your eternal love for your beloved people. Lord, we even repent of our own slander and our doubts, our vilifying you and questioning your love for us. And as we see this frightful scene in Kadesh Barnea, a whole nation tumbling into apostasy, we ask that you would keep us from all steps in that direction that we would not turn and look back and seek to go back, whether to Egypt or our own unbelieving past, but we would walk forward in faith. We ask that you would empower us to do so not only as individuals and by households,